as we dig deeper into the final and finalization of types, shadows, realities, and symbols of scripture, we want to focus for at least this message on this river of life. Now, as we mentioned in the previous message, God separated water from water on the second day of creation. On, on the first day of creation, we are, um, we're introduced to the relationship between the spirit and the water. And in, in John, we see the collapsing of the symbol of water and word as the same thing. And we see in heaven, there is a crystal, there's a sea of glass, clear as crystal, in the midst of which sits the throne of God and surrounded by a rainbow, which is a type of water, water vapor, which is, an, is a, a, a showing of the many splendors of the Word and the many splendors of God, all of which, of course, come to rest in the person of Christ. And the relationship between the Spirit and the Word makes the Word effective. So the Spirit, the Word, the throne are all indications of the power of the Word of God in creation. And we've come to see that the Word of God is not merely words on a page, but the living person of the Lord Jesus Christ who is the quintessential and complete representation of God in creation. That was, those were some of the summary points from the last message. So I want to proceed now to more intentionally look at, if you like, the stages of manifestation of the Word or of the water. So here in Revelation 22, he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, and it proceeds from the throne of God and of the Lamb. First, we said it's the water of life, or we commented on what has been said. It's a river and it's of water of life, a river of water of life. Very important. On the earth, in the beginning, in Genesis chapter 2 verses 10 through 14, a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four riverheads the name of which is Pishon. It is one which skirts the whole land of Havilah, 
where there's gold. And I'll just summarize the other three. Pishon is the first, Gihon is the second, and then Tigris and Euphrates. Pishon is a gusher and uh, it, it speaks of the abundance of flow that represents the, the tremendous generosity of God. Uh, Gihon is a spurter, a gusher and a spurter, meaning that water under pressure, as it were, water that is an abundant flow as compared to a trickle. And then uh, um, Tigris and Euphrates uh, come to create the land known as Mesopotamia, the cradle of civilization, of human civilization. Mesopotamia quite literally meaning land between waters. So with the creation of the earth, we were looking into the heavens in the last passage or in the last time together and what we were considering is what does water look like in heaven and it's the authority and power of the representation of God in creation and that would come into the earth in the person of Christ. In heaven it is seated on the throne, it is clear uh, it is as clear as crystal and described as a sea, a sea of glass and a rainbow containing the many ways to look at and the splendors of God, a recurring theme from the Ark of the Covenant and the, uh, rather from, the, from Noah's Ark all the way through to a man above the waters in the book of, uh, of, Dan of Daniel clothed in many splendors, um, things coming up out of the water in the earth, speaking prophetically to the end of the age, on and on and on. Uh, it, this matter of water in heaven and water on the earth um, is presented. It's described as a pure river of water of life, pure. It's, it, it's the word from which we get the English term catharsis, a catharsis, which is to say you've come through the struggle and you're on the other side. And the term catharsis there is used in conjunction with having overcome and being on the other side of the trial. So this pure means uncontaminated, unmixed, unsullied. The, the whole point of our walk with God and all the trials of it is to render us a people without spot, wrinkle or blemish, an overcoming people, a people who when they overcome are given such things as 
a new name, uh, given the right to the tree of life, a thing that was barred to the fallen man in the garden. So pure, the intent of God is to purify a people, to make them pure, which is a synonym for the word holy because you cannot use a thing that is impure for holy purposes. That's why everything was cleansed, everything was purged, everything was refined, and so on. Purity associated with a river which is intentionally different from a stream evincing, gushing, spurting, uh, not treacherous but mighty, full, uh, a heavy flow as befitting the descriptions of God's ability to give and to sustain. This is called the water of life, Zoe, eternal life, life from the throne of God. And, and life from the, it proceeds from the throne of God, which is to say that this, this that is represented here, an archetype, is about life itself in God. And it is highly unlikely that in this final state of being, where the entire world described is not only spiritual, but it is the final intent of God. And it is what happens when creation has been concluded, when there's no longer a heaven or an earth as we have known it, but the eternal in one location, where it is aptly described as the new heavens and the new earth and the dwelling place of God and the dwelling place of the Lamb. How does God present this picture to mankind who is still of the natural comprehension of things, such as river, such as pure, uh, such as water? What is God saying to us in all of this? Well, it might be as problematic as what was God saying when he talked about the lamb slain from the foundations of the world? Our acquaintance until Christ was with a lamb. And even now, our acquaintance with Christ as the lamb is in his resurrected and glorified form, but we don't necessarily see ourselves as those who, quote, follow the lamb wherever he goes in the fashion of being the body of Christ and himself as the head. Because in this very divided environment in which the followers of Jesus are divided by their leaders primarily and by the histories of their leaders. In other words, from what perspective uh, they derive their present theological 
um, ruminations. We're yet to be unified and have the commonality of understanding that goes with being a spiritual people because we're still trying to fit spiritual things into natural orders. So, and with the help of Rome and Constantine and Charlemagne, we attempt to attach spiritual connotations to what are essentially nationalistic and humanistic perspectives on scripture. The state church, for example, where no one actually has to have a relationship with Christ to be a member of the state church. You're born into it. And even reformers fail to chronically fail to address the central issues. But, but th- that can be forgiven because there are times of ignorance that God simply winks at. Because until He shows the thing, He knows that we are going to follow the arc of our historical perspectives. And it takes time for Him to reveal in the more excellent fashion the way that His original intents are meant to be actualized in any epoch of time. So quite often, those who have been given revelation and insight into heavenly things experience the most strenuous pushback from the thing that once was associated with with God and with the revelation of God. It's always the last move of God that oppresses the present move of God and the leaders of what God is saying, and a move of God is no more and no less than another incremental overlay upon existing truth. Now, that is not the same as saying an incremental overlay upon error and falsehoods. Error and falsehoods we know have a life of their own and become consistent with that which falls away having been co-opted by Satan and described in Scripture as a woman who sits on a beast, adorning herself in the trappings of importance and of relevance, but indeed derives its power from the harlot. Uh, Sorry, indeed derives its power from the beast and becomes a harlot in the process because her favors are sold to those who give her this relevance and the only relevance she has is by promoting the unholy intents of unrighteous kings who form part of uh, the government in its compendium representative of this beast. So a river of life then 
is both a picture and a reality. The picture is that of a river, the reality is of a people who are in the collective the possessors of and the ones who live within an eternal economy of God and have eternal life. They're described as a river here. And for all eternity, and that's kind of a, an under, underwhelming statement because there's no such thing as all whenever we talk about eternity because eternity is age upon age or endless ages, so it's never possible to see the all of it. But the point being that it is a reference to agelessness, timelessness in a realm of spirit, in a realm that is eternal, where the final outcomes that God intended and now the prevailing reality and are as permanent as God himself. Now how does that look? Well, we will find out. But in type and shadow, it is considered a water, a river of the water of life and consistent with pure, a pure river, uncontaminated river, one that has experienced the catharsis and release of its release from all manner of taint. It is simultaneously a people and by reference, by allegorical reference and appropriately a river, a pure river. Again, the idea of rivers have been here as long as they are, as, as long as the earth was. And they have to do with how God gathered water in heaven and how God gathered water on the earth. Water in heaven is very different than water on the earth, although the properties are the same as they affect both realms. So, Water on the earth is for sustaining of life. Water in heaven is for sustaining spiritual life. Jesus said that. He said, if you, woman, if you knew who asked you for water, you would ask him for the water that springs up into eternal life. It's a wellspring that ultimately is fully realized in an eternal context. Uh, so, water of life and then first it's pure, it's a river, it's clear as crystal. And again, the, 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 the term clear implies uncontaminated, crystal implies sparkling, sparkling, glittering, shining because it is a reflection of the glory of God. Now, these rivers and their relevances actually 
go through many forms of revelation. Let me show you something from the book of uh, Ezekiel chapter 47 and we'll study verses 1 and 12, although I, I would encourage you to read both, the, well, all of the verses between verses 1 and 12. Now pay attention. Ezekiel chapter 47, verse 1 and verse 12. Ezekiel is having a vision and he's seeing heavenly things in earthly contexts. I might remind you that Ezekiel is living somewhere around 600 years before Christ, so something on the order of from the record of creation, something on the order of 3,500 years after God established the heavens and the earth. So a long, long time, by whatever metric uh, you measure it. Ezekiel says the following, Then he brought me back to the door of the temple. So by then, of course, the temple existed, temple in Jerusalem, Solomon's temple. And there was water flowing from under the threshold of the temple toward the east. For the, fount, for the front of the temple faced east. The water was flowing from under the right side of the temple, south of the altar, verse 12, along the bank of the river and on this side and that will grow all kinds of trees used for food. Their leaves will not wither and their fruit will not fail. They will bear fruit every month because their water flows from the sanctuary. Their leaves will not wither and, they, and their fruit will not fail. They will bear fruit every month because the water flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for medicine. While you're pondering that, overlay this on top of that. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 8. And in that day it shall be, the living waters shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and half of them toward the western sea. In both summer and winter it shall occur." Hmm. Essentially, an editor to Ezekiel. But this is not this period spoken of here in the book of Revelation. Uh, because that is preceded by 
in chapter 20 where he says, and there was no more sea. So, now, clearly it is not speaking of anything that existed or existed shortly after or even in our time, the reign or the time of Ezekiel or or Zechariah. So it's referring to something intermediate, intermediate. And this is a great, great revelation to me because I said to you that a thousand years are required for all that God wishes to accomplish in the millennium to be accomplished in the millennium and there will be a sequencing of the events to accommodate the will of God and purpose for creation, will of God and purpose for the millennium and then after the millennium. So toward the very end of the book of Revelation, you have two breaks. The first is at the beginning of the millennium up until the end of the millennium and the second break is what happens after the millennium. In regards to this river that is in the millennium, it flows from the door of the temple. But you remember that in the book of Revelation, neither is there, there are three things that we know are not there, many more things, but for our purposes, three things in particular. Number one, there's no more sea. Number one, number two, there is no more temple. And number three, there's no more sun, moon, and stars because the Lamb is the light. So clearly the, the scriptures are showing us in a condensed form by these references which hark back to these references in the Old Testament, prophetic references in the Old Testament, that there are two periods beginning with the return of the Lord. With the return of the Lord, there will be the establishment of His reign and that will be in the physical city of Jerusalem although the earth will be cleansed and all the rubble and contamination of present Jerusalem will not be what He returns to because He'll cleanse it. And then after the millennium is over, there will be a new, new Jerusalem which is entirely spiritual. The intervening Jerusalem is that transformed portion of the earth called Jerusalem. 
It's de designed to project the name associated with Jerusalem. The name is Peace, City of Peace that houses the administration of the Prince of Peace. And then slowly over the, from the beginning of the millennium to the end of the millennium, a new Jerusalem will become a new reality. This puzzled me for a long, long time. Indeed, it puzzled me throughout my entire life. I did not see, I thought it was either or. Either the New Jerusalem came with the return of the Lord or it came at the end of the millennium. I did not see that there is an intervening form that reminds us of the final form. And as we move from, as we move through the age known as the millennium, and as the purposes of God for the millennium are accomplished, the new Jerusalem will descend in its reality into the earth and will actually become the very depiction of the new heavens and the new earth, the eternal reality, the dwelling place of God, far removed, I believe, from any structure, order, form, sentiment, or anything we now understand except as has been revealed to us in the language that describes such things. I have to pause here, but I want to pick up on what the intervening order that is called the Jerusalem of Jesus, of the King, and the New Jerusalem, what, those, what distinguishes the one from the other. We'll continue uh, when we return. I'm Sam Solon. We'll see you then. Bye-bye.